Good morning. I have been longing for this morning. I love baptisms. And this morning, God is going to do something mind-boggling here among us. He's going to make Christians. That's amazing. Ilana and Quinn and James and Max and Neela and Zara and Huxton. And then tonight in Elkton, Jay. He's going to pour out his love and his grace and his mercy and his Holy Spirit on these seven children here in the one tonight. And in their baptism, he's going to make them into Christians. They haven't earned this. They can't earn it. It's grace. It's not merit. Grace, it's the opposite of earning. But it's not the opposite of effort. God's acceptance of us is un. Is unconditional, but here's the key. It is not inconsequential. These children, their baptism this morning, it's all of grace. But there will be consequences. In God's grace, they're going to leave this room, this church building changed. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Adopted as his children. Forgiven of their sins. Unconditionally accepted by God. Now, for those of you who struggle with this, listen, if you're comfortable thinking God's grace is activated by a prayer you pray, but you're comfortable thinking that's not a work, same thing with baptism. It's an action. It's not under the category of work. Okay, we're in the same logic. Salvation by grace. No amount of effort can earn this. But just like Jesus at his baptism... The baptisms this morning, your own baptisms, this is just the beginning. Now, you must learn to be a Christian. And as we listen together for God's address through our gospel passage this morning, let's hear three lessons with regard to being a Christian. If you have a Bible, find the gospel of Mark. It's the second book of the New Testament. If you need to use your table of contents, no sweat, no worry. Go for that. Mark chapter 1. We're going to pay close attention to these few verses that I just read a few moments ago that account for the baptism of Jesus. Mark chapter 1 verses 9 to 13. And as we do, three lessons about being a Christian. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening. It's a rather tepid translation. Literally, the word is being ripped apart. Same word used at the end of Mark's gospel when the, when the curtain in the temple is ripped apart. So Jesus, he's baptizing. As soon as he comes out, he sees this gash in the heavens. And he sees the Spirit of God descending on him. And he hears God's deep affirmation. Now, if we go back into the biblical roots of what's going on here, we can realize what we're seeing when the heavens are opened. It doesn't mean that a long way off with his super power, superhero eyesight. He could see this door way out in the galaxy, slightly ajar. That's not what it is. 
In the Bible, heaven is God's dimension. Heaven and earth, not two different locations in the Bible, but two different dimensions of the same reality, like weight and volume, two different aspects. Here, with our platonic view of the universe, our platonic cosmology, we tend to think in terms of kind of a fairy tale, that heaven is way off and earth is here, and that our Father is in heaven means my prayers have to travel a million miles to get to God who's in another place. But in a biblical cosmology, heaven and earth aren't two different locations or two different dimensions of the same reality. Heaven is God's dimension behind ordinary reality. It's more like an invisible curtain right in front of Jesus was suddenly pulled back so that instead of the trees and the flowers and the buildings, or in Jesus' particular case, the sandy desert and the crowds and, 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 the, and the river, suddenly Jesus is seeing a different reality that was there all along. Now he can see it. That's what it means. The heavens are being ripped open. And here's our first lesson. Learning to be a Christian means learning to live by a hidden reality. It means learning to live by the, by the reality of heaven. Even when you can't see it. So much of Christian faith is a matter of learning to live by this different reality that you can't always see. Now, there are moments, decisive, climactic moments, when God in his grace pulls back the curtain and you get a glimpse, you see, you hear what's really going on. But for most of us, for most of the time, we walk by faith, not by sight. And that's what it takes to be a Christian. We have to learn this. We have to learn that there, there is a God and that there is a reality and that there is a dimension that we're not always seeing. But in faith, we live by it. One of the things Mark is doing by putting this right at the beginning of his gospel is he's saying to us, when you read this gospel, when you look at the life of Jesus, when you look at his story, learn to see and to hear the heavenly vision. The heavenly voice. You need to learn. and you, See, Mark is not only accounting for the life of Jesus. He's writing to you, the recipient. And he wants you to learn to read this book as God's address to you. He wants you to let these words from God be living words from a living God to you. Not just a historical account. And you need to learn to let these words change you and mold you and to make you somebody new, the person God wants you to be. You need to discover this story is the normally hidden dimension, but it is there. It is true. That's the first lesson for all of us here this morning. Learning to be a Christian means learning to live by the reality of heaven. And this brings us to our second lesson. Any early Christian reading this passage would have believed that their own baptism and that moment when they were baptized, they were baptized into Jesus, the Messiah, and the curtain was drawn back and they became children of God. They received the spirit of God. Their sins were forgiven and God declared over them his utter delight. 
Any of the early readers would have read the story of Jesus' baptism as the template of their baptism. That when they were baptized, God's dimension broke into their life. God's spirit poured into their life. God's love covered their life. God's exquisite delight was set as a seal on their life. Listen again to these words from Mark chapter 1 verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with you. I am well pleased at your baptism. God spoke these words over you. You know what? It's really ambiguous if anybody else saw this. Jesus came up. Jesus saw it. Did anybody else saw it? See it? Probably not. It appears they didn't. But the reader sees it. You and I see it. That's Mark's way of saying, even if you didn't see it at your baptism, it was there. This morning, God is going to say today, Wavitas and the Finnegans and Huxton, you are my child. I am so pleased that I made you. That you exist. I'm pleased with your life. This morning in a few minutes when we baptize. You may not see heaven being opened with your own eyes. And you may not hear God's voice. It doesn't appear like I said that any of the bystanders did. But this is what is happening. We live by faith. And this is so important. In fact I think the whole Christian gospel can be summed up right here at this point. That when the living God looks at us at every believing and baptized Christian he says to us what he said to Jesus on that day he sees us not as we are in ourselves but as we are in Christ beloved and well pleased that's the gospel living in that by faith now how does this come about how does such incredible things happen well it takes the whole rest of Mark's gospel to explain that and he ties it into the very end with these words. The heavens were ripped open. The, the, the temple curtain was ripped open. It takes the whole gospel to explain how this occurs. But right up front, he tells you it does occur. Now some of you, you've never had this kind of love. This kind of unconditional love. For whatever reason, your parents or your spouse or your work, affirmation for you has always been contingent on performance. Some of us come from such good backgrounds that we read this and we're like, of course, that's the way love works. That's how I am. I've never struggled with this. I've never felt my parents leverage my performance. I've never grown up. I've never experienced that kind of mentality. I've never struggled with feeling like when I sin, somehow it discounts God's love for me. For whatever reason, that's the kind of temperament I've got. And that's the kind of family I came from and all of that worked together. To, But I know that we're not all like that. I know that there are many of us who struggle with this. Maybe it's our personality, our temperament. But for some reason, your way of being in the world skews you on this precise point that somehow being God's child is not about him adopting you. It's about you working in, in day after day proving your worth to him. And can I say that's okay? 
God loves working with skewed people. He doesn't, he's not afraid of your temperament. He's not afraid of your personality. He's not afraid of your dysfunction. And for you learning to be a Christian, for all of us learning to be a Christian, is to, is to learn to believe that God looks at us and he says to us, you are my dear, dear child. I am delighted with you. Now think about that for just, reflect on that for just a minute. At your baptism and every day since, God's banner over you is love. I love that passage out of Song of Solomon, right? The, the, the lover takes his, his beloved into the party and she says, his banner over me is love. In other words, it's like you can't, you can't even tell that we're not, that he doesn't love me, that just the way he looks at me, it declares to the whole room his love for me. God looks at you that way. God is in love with you. And learning to be a Christian is not only learning to, to, to live by the heavenly dimension, it is learning to hear the heavenly affirmation. It's a lesson to learn. Wendell Berry said, God is the wildest thing in creation. You tell your children, be careful around, I don't know, bears. <laughs> They're wild, right? Tigers, lions, oh my. <laughs> Infinitely wilder is God. Infinitely wilder. C.S. Lewis says, God is the hunter, the warrior, the king. He approaches at infinite speed, totally out of our control, but full of goodness. Filled with love that you can't imagine. Grace to the core. That's God. That's the God whose banner over you is love, love, love. This is our second lesson. This God, his love, it is as broad and great as humankind itself. It is as high and deep as our misery. It is more powerful even than the, own, the hells that we make out of our life. Learning to be a Christian is learning to hear God's loving affirmation. And if that news lives in you, you can begin to have a heart that sings. Pain will come, yeah. Yeah. But you can sing. Sorrows will come. But you can sing. Death will come. But you can sing. Never let this singing be taken out of your heart. Keep singing. And then as you do, you will shine forth light. And whatever darkness you go into, light will come from you. Sing. However dark it is in your life. Praise God. Thank Him. Glorify Him. Jesus lives. He loves us. His banner over us is love. Never Doubt God's love. But Aubrey, no, there is no but. But you don't understand my life. I don't. And I know you're a far worse sinner than I am. I know. (laughs) You don't be so arrogant to think that your sin is bigger than this wild God. That's an act of arrogance. God is infinitely greater than you. And his love is infinitely greater than even your affair. Your abuse of your child. Your theft. Your selfishness. Bigger than that. Grace to the core. Christian faith means believing God loves us. He is delighted in us. He's adopted us. We're his beloved children. Being a Christian means learning to hear God's loving affirmation over Our own personalities, 
faith is holding tight to the love that we received in our baptism. Josh and Sarah and Indy and Kim and Kevin and Lindsay and Kyle and Melissa, you you get to help your children learn this lesson. You get to love them and affirm them. You get to say to them over and over for week upon week and year upon year, there is nothing you can do to make me love you anymore or love you any less. You get to image the love of the Father to your children so that they can learn to hear that. And in the years ahead, as they struggle to accept themselves and to come to grips with their own creatureliness, you get to say to them, on January the 11th, 2015, you were baptized into Christ Jesus. And he sealed you with his spirit. And he poured his love on you. And he forgave you. But I didn't ask for it. Well, that's the way it is. It's all of grace. And he adopted you into his family. Martin Luther, that giant of justification by faith, in his darkest days, and his deepest doubts, he would say to himself when he barely believed in God and barely believed in his own salvation, Luther, this advocate of justification by faith, you know how he found security? He said, Luther, you were baptized. Now, if Luther can, ju- can fit together justification by faith and the effectiveness of baptism, we can too. So I say to my children, you were baptized. You were baptized. One more lesson. That's all we've got time for this morning. Learning to be a Christian means learning to live by the reality of heaven. It means learning to hear and know God's affirmation. And third, third, it means learning to go with courage into your vocation. Now, it seems like all of a sudden out of left field, but it's right out of the passage, right? Notice what happens as soon as he's baptized. Verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him, literally cast him. It's the same word for Jesus casting out demons. Literally, the spirit cast Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted. Now, to understand what this has to do with you and I learning to go into our vocations with courage, we need to understand why Jesus submitted to John's baptism. Look back at verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Same thing, by the way, that Peter said on the day of Pentecost, for those of you who are familiar with the Bible. It's this deep connection of baptism, forgiveness of sins. It's right there. It's right there with baptism. Why does Jesus submit to a baptism for the forgiveness of sins when Jesus didn't have any sins? He's perfect. The reason is because Jesus, he's not going to this baptism as a sinner, but because of his surrender to humanity. He is is committing himself to total solidarity With the human race. That was Jesus' vocation. To, To live a life of total solidarity with humanity. And the moment he surrenders to his vocation. The spirit says, bam. Here are the consequences. It's desert. It's temptation. It's suffering. It's pain. As soon as Jesus surrendered to his vocation of total solidarity with the human race, immediately he's cast into 
the temptation and the pain and the suffering that it means to be human. Now, what is it about this wilderness that we need to notice? Well, the wilderness in Scripture is portrayed as the realm of evil powers. We don't have time to go through all the passages in the Old Testament where in the wilderness there are lurking predatory beasts. But here is Jesus. The original readers would have immediately known that. They would have connected wilderness with that. And here is Jesus entering Satan's territory, beginning his campaign. Against the powers of evil. Remember all through the fall. We learned that the Bible at its core. Is the story of how God is dealing with evil. And now we're beginning a sermon series. In the gospel of Mark. And here we see that in this climactic moment. In the story. Here is God himself in the flesh. One of us itching. To get the battle on. Itching. To bring this thing to a head. This long story of dealing with evil, as soon as Jesus surrenders to that vocation, the Spirit of God says, let's go. You see, at the heart of the Bible is God dealing with evil. As soon as Jesus surrenders to the vocation, bam, the Spirit of God propels him into a confrontation with evil. (laughs) It's as though the Spirit was spoiling for a fight. As soon as God pours out the Spirit on Jesus, the Spirit drags Jesus. He's been waiting for a true human to show up. We don't have time to go into that this week. Finally, he's got a real human who can do what humans were made to do. Now, as we keep working our way through Mark's gospel over the next several months, we'll see this is just the first engagement in the battle. Now, what does this have to do with you and me learning how to be a Christian? Well, it's this all of us have a vocation. All of us have a job, a career, a vocation, and whatever it is, whether you're a pastor like me, or an educator, or an artist, or an administrator, or a student, or a child, whatever your vocation, it is tough. It's in the wilderness. There's suffering. There's pain. And it's tough for two reasons. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, every square inch of God's creation broke. Work is broken. Vocation is broken. And it's also tough for this reason. All work is holy work. All work is engagement with the adversary. Over the last hundred years or so, here in America, the church has done a dumb thing. It's created this pyramid of of vocation. And at the top are the holy vocations. Priest. And then is the helping vocations, doctors and people who go and, um, and, and serve around the world in hard ways, teachers. And then at the bottom are businessmen or artists. I mean, who needs them, right? In this pyramid scheme. The only reason for businessmen in this pyramid scheme is because they make money and money is muscle for mission. Missions at the top. We need to blow that pyramid to smithereens. That's baloney. All work is mission because all of this world belongs to God. Every square inch of it. Wherever your vocation takes you. Into law. Into homemaking. Into being a wife. Into being a husband. Into being parents. Into art. Into into teaching. Every square inch is holy missionary work. This is a missionary convention. There's 200 missionaries in this room. Tired. Because it's damn hard. It's brutal. You're worn out. 
Our lawyers in this room are just barely holding on. Our homemakers in this room don't know if they could go to tomorrow. It's hard work. And it's hard because it's broken. And it's hard because it's holy. It's mission. How are you going to sustain yourself when your vocation takes you into the wilderness? The moment you commit to a career driven into the wilderness... Driven into confrontation with an enemy that wants to destroy you. How are you going to sustain yourself in that? Let me tell you a story. Sheila Cassidy. Some of you have heard of her. She's a rather well-known British writer and doctor. She's known for her work in the hospice movement. When she was 38 years old, she um, discovered the poor through a good friendship with the Chilean a doctor doing her residency at Oxford with, with uh, Sheila Cassidy. She became such good friends with this friend that she moved back to Chile. And um, a few years after she got there, there was a military coup. This is Pinochet. A couple of years, a year or so into the coup, she left. She goes back to um, England. Then she decides she can't do that. She can't leave the marginalized. So she goes back to Chile in the middle of this dictatorship, in the middle of this brutal situation. In 1975, Sheila Cassidy made a brutal mistake. In quotes. She gave medical care to Nelson Gutierrez, a wounded political opponent of Pinochet. As a result, she's arrested, imprisoned, And tortured in the most inhumane and brutal and sexual ways. Finally, under government pressure, she's she's rescued. She goes back to England. And for decade, over a decade, she struggles with intense depression. Janelle and I and our children, we lived in Cheltenham, England. uh, For a few years. She was speaking in Cheltenham one time. And somebody asked her. How in the world can a person survive psychologically the most brutal torture in over a decade of debilitating depression? And she said this, you need images of God that are adequate for the journey of life. Now this takes us right to the heart of our passage, right to the heart of vocation. What is Jesus's image of God as he goes into the wilderness? Can you see it? What is Jesus' image of God? Loving, extravagantly generous, a gift giver pouring out his spirit, a a lover whose banner over him is love, a father who is pleased. What is your image of God? We need to attend carefully to our images of God. Because we need the courage to wake up on a Monday. And to make it to a Friday. Because we need to wake up on Monday and we need to know like Robert Farrar Capon said. That all of us when we go to work it is an act of obedience to the Father. Going into the world to lift our little corner of the world up into the passion. Is your image of God sufficient for the journey of life? If we start the journey imaging, imagining that our God is a bully, an angry, threatening parent ready to yell at us and slam the door at us and kick us out into the street. We're going to fail. Temptation, suffering, wilderness, wild beast. 
But if we remember, if, if our image of God is this God with grace to the core, love we can't imagine, who is not some deistic God looking at this world from a distance, but is up close, loving Sean Hogan, pleased in Sean, who will say to Hux from this day and for every day, I love you, I am pleased with you. Don't place yourself above God with your intellect. Put yourself beneath him with your heart. So that your heart can become still before the Father. Because God's love is the key to the world we live in. It is the answer. Notice the structure of our passage in verse 10 and 11. It's the image of God and Jesus filling his eyes and filling his ears. And then in verse 12 in the first half of 13, it's Jesus in the wilderness and the temptation and the suffering. And then look at the last half of verse 13. Angels were ministering to Jesus. Do you see how sandwiched around the suffering is the love and the care of God? These angels, you see, they don't keep Jesus from being tested. They just give him all that he needs so that he can make it all the way to Calvary. What are they doing? They're assuring him that his beloved father was watching over him, was there with him. Was loving him. Was acting through him. Pouring out his spirit on him and in him and through him. Jesus could do this. Because he heard the words of love. The words of life. Now I suppose there are some of you and you've been baptized. But you are far from living the Christian life. Well today's a great day to come home. Who wouldn't want to come home to this father? And you know what? He's going all out today. He's prepared a feast. Not metaphorically, he really has. And just a few minutes after baptism, God is going to invite you back to his table. The prodigal son, the prodigal daughter, come back. Turn around. Tell him you're sorry. Don't feel like you got to earn your way up to this table. It, It starts in grace. It doesn't go on in merit. This is just the most remarkable passage, isn't it? Through this gracious gash in the universe, God has poured out his spirit into the earthly realm. The spirit is a dove with its descent. The new creation is beginning. That reference to wild animals, it's a double entendre. It's both the demonic powers, but it's also drawing us back to the first Adam who walked with the animals in peace. Do you notice how the passage is ambiguous? Are they attacking him? Is everything okay? It's both. A true man is here. New creation is beginning. He's taking us back to the way things were meant to be. After ages of alienation, heaven itself has drawn near. The barrier between heaven and earth has been ripped apart. The power of the new age has begun to flood the earth through Jesus' baptism. And the Father's voice is spreading. And this morning... It will spread to seven children. Is it spreading to you? Let's keep learning to be Christians. To live by the reality of heaven. To hear God's affirmation. And to go with courage. With images of God that are sufficient. Into our vocations. Let's pray.